0: Welcome to the Women Encouraged Podcast, I'm your host, Bethany Berendrecht. We are all about growing in Christ and being shaped by His Word, so I'm delighted to share these conversations with Christians who love the Lord, love His Word, and are pursuing a life of faithfulness in Him. I'm praying this episode is a blessing to you and that you'll be encouraged to apply the gospel to this topic and walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Welcome to the conversation. Hi friend, welcome back. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. It's a conversation that I hope will help you understand the differences between doubt and unbelief, and also to think through some of the primary issues within progressive Christianity. Elisa Childers is my guest today, and I am just so thankful for her, for her apologetics ministry of writing and podcasting, and for her new book, Another Gospel, which releases this month. I couldn't stop reading her book, and I believe it's a must-read for every Christian, Elisa shares her story with us in this episode, and she really helps to clarify what it means to process doubt as faithful Christians. Let's jump in right away. Elisa, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining me at the Women Encouraged podcast. Oh, Bethany, it's so great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. I want to have you introduce yourself to the listeners right away, but I want to say right off the bat that I've been following along with your story and your podcast and so encouraged by you. And so this is kind of a dream come true in a way just to have you here and sharing all of this, but also sharing about your book this book, Another Gospel, is one I believe every Christian should read. It is so important. I'm going to have my kids read it, but it moved me in ways that I didn't anticipate, and I actually found myself feeling so joyful and so comforted by this book, which may not have been your original intent, but um. it was something that— um the, that God really used to encourage me in my walk with Him, and to wow. just comfort me that His Word is trustworthy, and the joy that I felt reading this, like God, you are so faithful. Praise you for everything you've done in Elisa's life. So, welcome, and please tell us about yourself and share your story with our listeners. Well, first of
1: all, Bethany, I I really appreciate you saying that. And I actually got a little emotional when you were saying that because I don't know if you know this. You probably don't know this, but you're the first person to interview me who's actually read the book. Really? Did you know that? No, I didn't.
0: But I'm so excited about that, actually.
1: I started sending out the advanced copies. And said, this is the first interview that I'm actually speaking with someone who has read all the words. And that is like, so exciting for me and good, kind of emotional for me, too. So I'm so just Delighted. Like, I just don't even know the word to know that it was encouraging for you, specifically in that way, that you felt that joy and just that excitement over, you know, knowing how trustworthy God's word is and how good, yes. he is and how faithful he is. And so, yeah, my story is really a story about God's faithfulness. So, I grew up in the church, I grew up in the um, kind of a more charismatic stream of the evangelical church, had wonderful Christian parents. And when I say wonderful Christian parents, I don't mean that they were perfect Christian parents, but that's kind of the point. I've I've actually talked with them about this. Like one of the things they did so well was not try to be fake or act like everything's perfect or they never had problems, but they just always modeled what it looks like to go to God with everything all the time, even your own Mm. failures. And so they would repent repent in front of us and even to us. And, uh, you know, my dad actually went through about with alcoholism when I was a young, a young child and just watching him continue to pursue God and, and watching God bring healing into his life. And that being such a real thing in my life as a young child really just solidified my faith at a very young age. And so I often, you know, a lot of times when people are into apologetics, they think that if you haven't been to, into apologetics, that your faith is either maybe kind of shallow or maybe it's just kind of a, a blind faith. But yeah. I honestly, my faith was not blind. I was in love with Jesus as far back as I can remember. Mm. And I loved the Bible. I mean, I found my old Bible from when I was nine years old. And I can see all of the highlights and the notes. And I mean, I loved God's word. And so again, not that my path was perfect, not that I didn't stray from that path from time to time throughout my life, but God has just been so faithful through my whole life. And I've always loved him. And even in the times when, You know, like I said, I might have gotten off the path a little bit. Just his faithfulness always came through. So I had a very real relationship with Jesus all my life and did a ton of ministry throughout my life. Uh, Particularly impactful was a couple of years that I spent living in New York City. Uh, I believe I was 21. And I did uh, an after-school program in the projects there. I worked with a a very small local church, and we did a lot of ministry uh, just to the community, to the neighborhood. And just, it was such a beautiful time in my life. It was a a difficult time, too, being uh, on my own at 21 in a pretty harsh city, which I love. I (laughs) I love New York City. But yeah, so I mean, just so many experiences in my life. And my faith was informed by a lot of those experiences. But the one... component that was missing and I didn't even know it at the time, but the one missing component was the intellectual component. Mm. And I don't mean even that to pit heart against head because, you know, your heart can only, I I forget who said this, this is not my quote, but somebody said the heart can only love what the mind knows. So I think that's Jen Wilkin actually that's the one. Yes. And, and so it's, I mean, that's, that's a profound quote because it's really true. There's not a competition between head and heart, but I just didn't have that real solid intellectual base to really inform my faith. And so I found myself, uh, about 33 years old, somewhere around there, maybe 34. I was a new mom, you know, by this time I'd gotten married and started to have kids. And I found myself in a local church here in middle Tennessee And the pastor invited me to be a part of an inner circle type study and discussion group. And so I was really excited about that because new moms who are listening know what an isolating time of life that can be. Yes. Just got. I mean, it's the the most amazing and horrible time of your entire life. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's just, it's the best and hardest. But you're kind of isolated. You can't just throw on your cute outfit and run out because you're kind of adjusting. Especially when it's your first child, you're just adjusting to this new life of self sacrifice, like you've never experienced before, and you're just not able to do all the things you always could do. And so that the idea of you know being able to get a babysitter and go to this class and really challenge my mind with Bible study and discussion, that just sounded so exciting to me. And so I went to the first class, and it was a very small class. The pastor, and you probably read about this in the book, where he had told us, you guys are all peculiar. There's something about you that's different. You, you want to go deeper in your faith, and you ask really interesting questions. You want to press on things. And so I kind of was confused by that because honestly, at that point in my life with the age that my daughter was, I was just trying to find a clean shirt that didn't have, you know, breast milk or mustard on it. And (laughs) and I'm like, peculiar, what? And so I felt kind of out of place, uh, but there must've been something about me that he thought I was in that category. And so today I look back and I know that that was God's sovereign hand putting me in that class because ultimately it would be the, the springboard that would sort of propel me into studying my faith in a really serious intellectual way.
0: But can I ask you real quick, when he was saying those kinds of things, because I know this becomes important later, but when he was saying those kinds of things, did you feel flattered or did you feel kind of like you said, you felt kind of like confused, like I just want to find a clean shirt to come here and stuff. But did you ever feel like, did it ever strike you either, either in that moment or later, like he was flattering me to build up to something? That is a
1: very insightful question.
0: And I would say, yes, I think that I
1: felt both flattered and fraudulent. Hmm. So I felt because also, and I didn't put this in the book, but he had told me when it, I can't remember if this was before the class or during, but I remember sort of expressing to him, all these other people in this class are so smart. And I just, I don't know why I'm here. Mm. And he said to me, and I, I'm only saying this because I do believe it was like flattery. It was just sort of- Kind of a type of grooming. Yes. Grooming is a great word. It's like puffing up your pride so that that he can have control. And I know yeah. that's assuming motive, but that's the best I can do to analyze that. But he said to me in that moment, you're one of the four smartest people I've ever met. Oh, wow. Yeah. I definitely felt flattered. I felt like, well, maybe there's something about me that I'm like really smart and I need to pursue this or something. I don't know. Uh But yeah, I think I think that is an insightful question because I'm sure that there's an element of that going on, that grooming to be able to have the control to sort of change your mind on all these other things. And so when we got into class, he revealed that he was an agnostic and he called himself a hopeful agnostic. And, you know, i I I didn't have a fully orbed understanding of what that word really meant but I just remember and and You'll, you'll notice this from the book. I kind of have this constant inner monologue going on that I put in the book in italics so you know what like my mind was saying versus what I actually said. And so my inner monologue was constantly saying, well, just don't be judgmental. You're the one who's judgmental. You just need to be more open-minded. You're too you know, dogmatic. I'd always been told that I was black and white and opinionated and dogmatic throughout my life. And so some of those old voices would come back in my head and I would almost scold myself, stop being so judgmental, be more open-minded. But as the class went on, I mean, that wasn't the least of it, the, or the, even the worst of it. Everything I'd ever believed about God and Jesus, but even particularly about the Bible, was deconstructed, was picked apart, was explained away. And we would read books week after week and then come back to discuss them. It was really rattling. To me and and in my faith, because I had always based my faith on the Bible. I'd met right. a we did a lot of street ministry growing up, and and of course in New York, you're going to meet a lot of different people from a lot of different cultural backgrounds and ideological yeah. backgrounds. So I, it's not that I was sheltered. I was not sheltered. My mom had us out working the soup lines at the Fred Jordan Mission as a young kid. So I, I did not grow up in a bubble. But mm. I was so it was so easy for me to dismiss any sort of objection someone would bring against what i believed because i just assumed they they just didn't believe the bible once the holy spirit works on them and they believe the bible then they'll see that xyz is true and whatever they were saying is false and so it never shook my faith it never rattled me but when this pastor was successful in undermining my belief that a the bible that i had in my lap was actually what they wrote in the first place and being hmm. that it told the truth and that it was god's word that god had inspired it when he was able to knock the foundation out from under those things that's when i went into a pretty serious faith crisis because that had been my objective standard for truth for my whole life and so it sent me into a really dark time of doubt and uh and even what i believe is a deconstruction process and then, through finding apologetics, God used apologetics to help rebuild my faith. but, yeah, essentially, the book is that story. it's the story of the deconstruction and the reconstruction
0: that it is such a fascinating story, and i I know we'll get to more of it in a minute, but one thing that really struck me as I read your book and i've I've heard you talk in interviews and watched you discuss basically the the authority and the the trustworthiness of scripture with. Lisa Gungor. And mm-hmm. it's just been amazing to me to really pick up from your story and your testimony of all of this that you weren't eager to deconstruct. This isn't something you were like looking for an opportunity mm-hmm. to do in any way. You were really clinging to what you knew and trying to test it. We're talking today, and one of the topics that we're, we're kind of tying this into in our heart series is the issue of doubt. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about doubt a little bit and explain the way that doubt is different from unbelief and maybe share kind of how your story ties in with a bit of that. Growing up in church, I,
1: I don't think I was ever explicitly taught this, but I definitely caught it that doubt is a really dangerous thing, that if you're doubting what you believe then it's an indication that you have a weak faith or that you're not a strong Christian. And again, nobody nobody said those words to me, but that was the impression I was under that maybe even doubt, you know, to to question what I believe or to doubt what I believe would even be maybe some kind of even a sin. And so I, when I found myself in the process of doubt, like you said, unwanted doubt, I found the gospel beautiful. If I would have, instructed and and gotten to the point where i thought christianity was not true i would be despondent because i truly saw the beauty of the gospel well again growing up i watched the power of the gospel change lives in a very real way uh, in a consistent way throughout my life and so when i experienced doubt It was shocking to me because I never dreamed in a million years that I would ever doubt my faith. I thought you could have proposed a hundred different things that I might think or do. Doubt would not have been one that I would have thought would ever have happened to me. And so there was a bit of a misconception about doubt that I had to work through because as I began to study the Bible and I began to realize, actually, doubt can't exist unless you actually have faith because Mm -hmm if you don't have faith and you're not doubting something, you actually just disbelieve. And if you read through Romans one and you, it begins with talking about how every, and this is my paraphrase, but every person essentially has knowledge of God in their hearts. Like it's written on our hearts to believe in God. Everybody is without excuse, Paul says in that sense. And so When somebody actually says, no, I'm going to reject what I know to be true, and I'm going to disbelieve, that would be a sin. But to question what you believe, to ask for evidence for what you believe, to say, I need to investigate this further and make sure that I think this is actually true. That's actually something that the Bible not only speaks favorably of, but actually commands us to do. And so one example of where the Bible would speak favorably of it would be in the case of John the Baptist. And if you think about who the John, John the Baptist is, this is the first prophet essentially in the New Testament after about 400 years of silence. So we have the Old Testament, the last prophet speaks in the Old Testament, and then Israel has 400 years of silence. And then here you've got this ragamuffin emerging from the desert saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, this guy had an encounter with God that probably none of us could could rival, This is a guy who literally baptized the Son of God, heard the audible voice of God, and saw with his eyes the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. So with all of his senses, he had evidence of the existence of God and really the truthfulness of Christ and of Jesus. And yet, when he challenged Herod on his marriage and Herod put him in prison, John began to doubt. And we know this because he sent his disciples to ask Jesus from prison to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Now, remember, he has seen, touched, and heard audible, physical Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, and he's doubting. Yeah. Are you the one? Maybe I got this wrong. And it's it's the response of Jesus that's so striking here. John, Jesus doesn't say, John, you shouldn't doubt or just have faith or, you know, you know your scriptures. Just just why are you doing this? No, Mm -hmm. Jesus said, go back and tell John what you've seen, the blind see, the lame walk. And Jesus performed miracles as evidence to give back to John and even referenced an Old Testament prophecy that John would have understood. And so Jesus responded to John's doubt by offering him evidence. It was the same with Thomas. When Thomas you know, honestly, I, I think Thomas gets a bad rap. He's not so much of a doubter, but he's more like a skeptic, which any one of us would be. If somebody came back and said, Hey, this guy that you've just spent three years with that you watched to die. Uh, yeah, he's back to life. If any one of us were Thomas, we'd be like, yeah, I need to see that before. I mm-hmm. that. But Jesus, again, didn't scold him. He offered the evidence here, put your fingers in the holes in my hands and touch with your, with your hands. Uh, and then it wasn't until he offered the evidence that he said, stop doubting and believe and right. in fact that's when thomas you know famously says my lord my god and and affirms that deity of jesus there and so i think that all through scripture god shows such tenderness toward people who are doubting in an honest way like they're really wanting to know is this true and that's why jesus talks so much about signs the miracles that he performs they're always called signs and even referring to the sign of jonah being his resurrection like i'm going to give you evidence that everything i'm saying is true that when I raise from the dead, then you'll know that what I said was actually true. And so we have eyewitness accounts of all of that. And so as I began to study all of that, it, it was so exciting to me because when I was in the class and the pastor was bringing up all these skeptical claims, I did not I didn't honestly know that anybody could answer the things that he was saying. And so I was confronted with a really big problem because I thought, oh man, this guy's thinking up some stuff that is really scary and I don't know if anybody has the answers. But then when I discovered that actually Christians have been answering these things for our entire history, it was so deeply encouraging to discover that rich intellectual tradition that goes all the way back to the early church.
0: Wow. That's so great. I love hearing that. In regards to doubt and kind of taking this back to discussing how doubt relates to the life of the, the believer. You talk in the book about how doubt is the badge of honor for progressive Christians. Can, you, can we shift a little bit and talk about progressive Christianity and the way that faithful Christians who are committed to historic Christianity, they express and process doubt differently from progressive Christians? Would you share a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think, generally speaking, that's, that's a really true statement. I think that in the progressive church, what I've discovered, and I should say this as part of my story so people have context of why now we're talking about progressive yes, Christianity. yeah, please do. <laughs> the, the, the group that I was in, in that church, the church itself and that pastor went on to identify themselves as a progressive Christian community. And so that's when I realized what was going on. And I began to see that phrase pop up everywhere in blog posts and on the internet. And all of my friends started identifying themselves as progressive Christians. And so I realized that I was actually on the ground floor of a church going from just maybe your typical evangelical non-denominational church into shifting into what is now called progressive Christian church. And so that's sounds, why that's-
0: it sounds like a good thing, right? Like if if just the yeah. average Christian hearer hears that and says, oh, well, progressive, you want to be progressing in your faith, but we're not talking about maturing. We're not talking about just growing and sanctification. We're talking about progressing in a direction that's unfaithful.
1: That's well put, Bethany. That's very well put. Yes, it is. It's progressing. Like G.K. Chesterton talks about uh, whenever you find someone progressing toward a madhouse, there's a really good chance they've just made an escape from another madhouse. And so- <laughs> progress toward falling off a cliff. And it's not necessarily a good thing. And so I think the thing um, that I talk about so much in the book is what I call historic Christianity, because essentially the, the choice I had to make was if I became convinced that my beliefs were false, that they were not true, that they did not line up with reality. What I was watching happen in my class were people walking away from the historic Christian faith for what I thought were not very good reasons. They were walking away because maybe they had experienced some abuse. So maybe somebody abusing the real thing, and so they throw the whole thing out. Or maybe others had unanswered prayers. There was a a guy that talked about how he really was losing his faith because God wasn't healing his wife's physical problems that she was going through. Uh, There were others who had grown up in a really strict sect of Christianity where they were told that everybody else is going to hell. And then when they met other people that seemed to really love Jesus, they thought that was all, you know, kind of silly. And they threw all of the gospel out with the abuses and with the the wrong parts of it. And so what I wanted to do was I I just, I said to myself, if I'm going to, walk away from this. I want to make sure that what I'm rejecting is the real thing. And so that became paramount for me to discover what is the real thing. And so I think that's maybe one element of your question is, first of all, when we go through doubt, we need to ask ourselves, what are we doubting? Are we doubting maybe an experience we had that wasn't the right representation of what real Christianity is? Or are we doubting that what the real thing is is actually not true. I think that's a really good first question to ask. And mm-hmm. so I went on a quest to figure out, you know, Jude talks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's not something that's going to change over the years. That's that's delivered once and for all. And so I wanted to know what that was. And so that's when I went back and looked at pre-New Testament creedal material that Christians used to identify what they believed about Christianity. I looked at the New Testament Christians. What were they passing on? I went through the first century, the second century. And what I discovered was that the core, the the bones of the gospel was really clear from very, very early on. And then, of course, you have heresies pop up here and there, and all throughout church history. The, you know, the different groups will go off the rails and all that. But if we go back to what Jesus passed down, what the apostles passed down, you know, that's what we need to decide okay, I'm going to accept that or reject that because that's what identifies Christianity. That's what defines it. That's what's made it unique in the world for 2,000 years. And so, what we see in the progressive church is often this doubt culture. So, doubt and deconstruction become a bit of a rite of passage. And so if you're doubting, you're considered very smart. If you're agnostic, if you're not sure how to answer questions, you're considered very intelligent and spiritually mature. Uh, But if you investigate something and you land on a position where you're fairly, you know, you don't even have to say you're certain, but fairly confident that you know, X, Y, or Z is true. Well, you just haven't really done the work yet. You know, you're, you're not as far along in your faith. And one day, I've even, you know, I, I, a perfect example of this is when I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition and a progressive scholar, Pete Enns, did a whole podcast on my article, yes. just basically trying to refute it. And he implied in the beginning that I just haven't gone deep enough. I forget his exact words. I don't want to misrepresent what he said, but he basically implied that I'm in for another faith crisis because I didn't go deep enough. I didn't, you know, and and I think that that is a really big uh, belief in that church that if you're not in a process of walking away, then you're not really spiritually mature. And so I think there's a real big difference between doubting honestly and saying, I Really, I'm doubting and I want to know what the truth is. And again, not every question, we don't know the answer to every question, but we do have a lot of answers. There are a lot of ways we can investigate evidence. We can know a lot of things, but there's almost this implication that if you land on an answer, then that's just not what they're, that's not what they're looking for. It's not what it's about. So it's, it's really what I would call a culture of doubt.
0: Yeah. And in so many in so many progressive circles, and frankly, in a lot of evangelical churches, even we've become so uncomfortable with God's Word and with speaking about it as though it is absolute truth mm. um, that the only thing we can be certain of is uncertainty. It's like that's like you can only know that you're uncertain about something, yeah, well, that's really interesting
1: because even in the in the class I was in, I remember that I think I wrote about this in the book, the children's Pastor at one point. He had asked a question to the class and she, she, she got really emotional and mm-hmm. she said, I don't know. And he praised her to the whole class. He said, now this is spiritual maturity. This is what I want to see. And I just thought that was such a bait and switch. It was, it's manipulative to tell people that, because essentially what he's wanting to do is put in his answers and, and make come to his conclusions. But anybody that thought critically enough to challenge what he was saying, uh, was viewed as not as far down the road, not as spiritually mature.
0: Yeah. And I don't remember who said it, but whoever it was who said it said that apologetics is not so much for the unbeliever as it is for the believer. And I struggled with understanding how that could be true. But as I read your book and as I've I've heard you speak, um, I really do see how this does work out for In your story, it's like the Lord used apologetics to strengthen your faith. Can you share kind of how that ties into your story of Reconstruction? Maybe tell us first, though, what does it mean to deconstruct? This is becoming more common in evangelicalism to hear this phrase. What does it mean to deconstruct your faith? Maybe we should step back there before we talk about your Reconstruction. Well, Deconstruction is uh, a bit of a rite of passage. In the progressive church,
1: and essentially what it means, there you know, there's a more academic, philosophical version of deconstruction that uh, comes from a, a philosopher named, I, I believe his name's Derrida or something, D E R R I D A. Yeah. And, but I think generally, when progressive Christians are talking about deconstruction, what they're basically saying is that they start to doubt all the things they believe, in, and then they go on this process of essentially picking apart every belief, and in most cases they're, they're tossing those beliefs aside. So let's say somebody grew up, uh, I'll just pick one out of the air. Like they grew up a Calvinist. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so they start to rethink predestination and free will. And so they go on a, a journey They and then they basically come to the conclusion. I think the Calvinist idea of that is wrong. Now I'm not saying that's good or bad. I mean, I, we all need to Investigate our own positions on secondary issues like that but i 'm just starting with a secondary issue to show you how it can keep going, so maybe they then they start to to think because because progressive Christians in general have a very bad taste in their mouth about calvinists okay they sort of, they will assume say i 'm not a Calvinist, but they assume that if you hold to orthodox doctrine. You know, you must just be one of those Calvinists. There's just this real hatred with Calvinists. I don't know. I I need to investigate that more and get to the bottom of that because I love Calvinists. I I love learning from them. There's a lot of wonderful Calvinists in my life. But let's just say they they reject that. Then they go, okay, well, if they got that wrong, then let's go to maybe what I was always taught about God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Like is or his omniscience. Does he really know everything that's going to happen? And then they might investigate that, tear it apart, deconstruct a little bit, and then maybe affirm some kind of an open theism where that would say God uh, knows the general gist of history, but he doesn't know what, you know, the consequence of your next decision. And he's sort of learning along with you. So they might adopt something like that and then take it a little further. And I mean, it can go all the way down to, they go all the way into atheism and then maybe come back to some kind of wider spirituality. Uh, some will deconstruct all the way up to the door of the deity of Jesus. They'll still affirm the deity of Jesus, but maybe he wasn't really resurrected. Right. And so there's this sort of mishmash of secondary and primary issues that are not parsed out in that way. So like for me, I wasn't even worried about what I thought about free will and predestination and baptism and tongues and women in ministry. I wasn't even thinking about it because I wanted to know like, did the resurrection happen? Is Jesus God? And, you know, the like I'm talking about core tenets of the gospel because I can work the other stuff out later if yeah. this core is true. But there seems to be this conflation of core issues with secondary issues. And so they'll just deconstruct as if it's all a level playing field. It's all sort of on the same level. And so basically deconstruction is just it, it's a process of disbelieving. It's getting toward disbelief. And again, not all people go all the way into unbelief, but very often they do. Some stay there and some reconstruct back to, um, a, like I said, a wider spirituality. There are a few who will reconstruct back to an Orthodox faith. And I've been interviewing some of those people on my podcast and their stories are quite fascinating. But generally speaking, that's not the case. You don't find a lot of people reconstructing back to Orthodoxy.
0: Hmm so for your story can you talk about share with us how how the lord worked through apologetics to reconstruct your faith yeah well the
1: book opens with my darkest time of doubt it's when i was sitting in the rocking chair rocking my daughter and it just felt like all hope was sucked out of the universe i just felt like everything i had ever believed was a lie i couldn't feel god's presence i i just felt like i was talking to a wall And it was a really dark time. I felt like I was drowning. You know, that was the metaphor that came to my mind Mm -hmm. that I had been thrown into a stormy ocean and I was dog paddling, but I was about to go under. And I just remember crying out to God and saying, please, please, please send me a lifeboat. Like if you are there, if you can hear me, even if I never feel your presence again, I need to know with my mind what is true. Please send me a lifeboat. Send me someone I can talk to that can answer some of these questions. Because Bethany, at the time, I didn't know any Christians who could answer the intellectual questions that I had. They, I didn't know any Christians who could answer this pastor and in the, in the claims that he was bringing up. And so I honestly don't know how much time went by, but I was in my car and I was driving, and I, I was fiddling with the radio. And I heard this voice, and it was a man who was answering questions from college students on a university campus. And I think it was like 30 or 90 minutes. It was, it was not just a short little thing. And systematically, he was answering just about every claim this pastor had brought up in class. And I just remember thinking, oh, please— please say the name of the person so I can find this person. And it was Robbie Zacharias yeah. at the end of the, the program. They said that was Robbie Zacharias on whatever campus. And so I went home and I Googled his name and I discovered that he had a 15 minute broadcast every day. And I think I listened to that broadcast every day for at least a year. I listened long enough that the episode started to recycle. Mm. So that's how I knew it was a long time. Cause I was like, wait, this is the episode i heard when I first started listening. So I listened to everything he said and then through, they would have commercials on there for say the SES apologetics conference. And so I found out they had an app and then I discovered Frank Turek and Jay Werner Wallace. And uh, then I started reading you know scholars the biblical scholars and it was just a beautiful journey that God took me on i was in a phase in my life where my kids were so small i think by this point i was pregnant with my second born or he was already born it was sort of all in that in that era because it was years you know it wasn't just oh, a couple months of trying to figure this out it, it was years of study and and reconstruction before i even felt like I was settled in my own faith, but I was so hungry. I just remember I didn't care what the lecture was about. I would listen to anything because my kids were small. I couldn't really sit down and read, but I could listen. I could listen while I was making lunch or while I was doing laundry or the dishes. Yeah. And I just listened. I mean, it did not matter. If it was a lecture on genetic entropy, I was all in. I just did not even care. I just wanted to hear somebody who had a different perspective than what I had been inundated with for months and months. And so I just listened to apologists and audiobooks and lectures and podcasts, and the Lord began to rebuild my faith. And I just remember being so struck by the depth of the answers, the breadth of the answers. So where the, the progressive pastor was really good at tearing things down by asking a bunch of questions, I discovered very quickly those questions were easily answered, and I was just struck by how little he actually knew when mm. you really studied the broad topic of it and that's what really showed me that i he, he didn't really know what I thought he knew because I was so struck by well this isn't just somebody sort of kind of thinking, well, no, you can believe and here's why. It was literally like so deep, like a glacier of information that just dwarfed the claims that were made in that class. And so I just was so hungry and I listened and listened. And then when my kids got a little older, I could sit down and read more, began taking classes at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And God just led me on the most beautiful path to, to and it's funny because Bethany, people ask me how how do you remember things so well? because like, they they think I have some kind of really good memory or something like yeah. that. I assure you I don't. But this stuff was just so life and death for me. Yeah. That the things that I keep in my brain are the answers to the deepest questions that I had. That's why I can recall them. But you know, I, I don't remember everything, but it's because it was so life and death for me. That, yeah. that's why it's
0: right there still. That's amazing because that is, isn't that true about the things that we just hold dear? The things that we feel like if I lost this, I would lose everything. Those mm-hmm. are the things that stick with us. Right. It's so true. And you can recall them yeah. in your
1: mind. If I, I can't remember what I had for lunch three days ago, but you know, it it it's true. It just, it stays in there.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic. I really, I really hope that so many people will pick up your book. I'm I'm so excited about it. I'm I'm thrilled about how this is going to serve the church in so many ways, but also in our current climate, people searching for truth, people trying to sort out fact from fiction constantly. And this is just a great starting place to engage with your story and then hear really the way that God transformed you from a place of really faithful doubting, like searching mm-hmm asking God for truth to and answering your cries and I just kind of I think of that verse like I, I cried to the Lord and he lifted me out of the miry clay like I feel like that's kind of that yeah. that that your story is is God lifting you out if if a listener is hearing this and they're thinking you know I'm I'm struggling with doubt or maybe they have a person in their life that they know is really deeply doubting what kind of encouragement would you offer them?
1: Well, the first point of encouragement I would give to somebody who's walking through doubt themselves, you know, you're the one who's walking through doubt. I think there are some really good diagnostic questions to ask yourself uh, as you're you're going through your doubting process, because like I said, I think doubt is a part of faith. And I think it was Tim Keller who said something like, faith without doubt is like a body with no antibodies in it. Hmm, Yeah. Ward off any diseases because you don't have any built-up immunity, and so some doubt can actually be a really healthy way to grow deeper in your faith. But I think some diagnostic questions are are really important. Ask, really seek to understand why you're doubting. Is your there are different types of doubt, and uh, Brett Kunkel over at Maven has some good talks on this. But you can you can be doubting from a intellectual place. Like, I I think to the best of my analysis, my doubt was purely intellectual, but there are other kinds of doubt. You can be doubting because, uh, be, like I, some of those reasons I mentioned before, maybe you've had a really bad experience with the church. And if that's you, I would encourage you to be honest about that, to sort of own that, acknowledge it, and for a moment maybe think about what you're actually walking away from. Because if you're walking away from an abusive church, that's a good thing. I would encourage you to not be in a church that's going to be uh, abusing their power or have an unhealthy leadership structure. And those are all really legitimate things, but I would just encourage you to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and to realize that it's people that abuse people, not doctrine. And so it's when people abuse the doctrines and use them in a manipulative way uh, even sometimes in a cultish way, I would just encourage you, don't throw the whole thing out, but definitely acknowledge the parts that were wrong because there's, it doesn't do anybody good for us to stick our heads in the sand and just act like we have this perfect history. Of course, we don't. But other questions you could ask yourself is, do I have a moral issue going on? Is there something in my life that is designated as sinful, according to the Bible, that I really love and I don't want to let go of. Mm. And so my doubt is sort of informed from maybe really wanting this to not be true because I really love my sin. And I think that's a diagnostic question to ask yourself. Other questions could be, am I doubting because I never really knew God? I, kn-, You know, maybe ask yourself, what did I think Christianity was in the first place? Did I have a moment in my life where I became aware of my sinfulness before God and cried out to Jesus to save me? Because there's a really good chance if you have never experienced that moment of putting your trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, that you might be deconstructing from something you were really never a part of in the first place. So there's all kinds of diagnostic questions. And if that's you, maybe ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you with honesty, God, show me my sinfulness. Break my heart before you. And and I believe that God loves to answer questions like that. So diagnostic questions. Now, regarding the question, if you have someone in your life going through doubt, my biggest piece of advice would be to stay calm. Uh, try as best you can to not react in fear. Because I know that when I was going through my doubt. Anybody in my life that would respond with fear drove me away. I didn't want to talk to them. But like there was one person in my life in particular that was so calm and not rattled at all. And this is a person who had virtually searched. Now, this person wasn't really up on apologetics, but they had searched through tons of other worldviews in their search for God and finally heard the simplicity of the gospel and had that moment where they realized, oh my gosh, this is so simple. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. And the gospel was just so beautiful. So every Every objection I'd bring up and ask about this person wasn't rattled at all. Yeah. they would just say, "Well, why do you find that particular thing so rattling, or maybe let's let's investigate? maybe we can find a book to read and that invited me into more conversation, and I would say that that would be the best way to go about things in conversation with someone else, but maybe you know challenge them to ask those diagnostic questions as well.
0: yeah, those are great pointers because I think they're not just things that we can ask ourselves but we can ask others in conversation and then they provide kind of a a jumping off point like you were talking about how your friend had really ministered to you and and walking with you patiently like those are good places to start from and then and then work from there those are that's really helpful to hear that thank you
1: it's not going to be a super quick thing yeah you know, I think that's the, as Christians, we just, well, here's your apologetic argument. What's wrong? Like, right. you know, I think it's just going to be fixed in a conversation. But like I said, there's often a lot of stuff going on underneath the questions. And so it's going to be an investment of a lot of time and relationship. And it could be months. It could be years. I mean, I the, listen, the Holy Spirit could move on someone's heart in just a moment and, right. and do something that quickly. Of course he can do that. But very often it's a process, and so just get ready for the long haul if you have somebody going through doubts that you know it's it's not going to be just, oh, let me send you this article, and it'll fix everything. It's just probably not going to work like that,
0: yeah, and I think it that really does highlight how it is the work of the Holy Spirit, and yes, he does use means, and we get to be that means oh. often through patiently walking through um, encouraging someone who's struggling like this, but I think that's it's so important to remember, like, we want to fix things right away. You know, that quick fix, slap a yeah. slap a gospel band-aid or a Bible verse or apologetics band-aid on it and hope that the gushing wound will stop. But yeah. when you realize, like, the Holy Spirit is the one that has to go to work. And my husband often says, like, he says he's been in some deeper relationships with guys who are maybe not even interested in being Christians, but they're asking questions. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, Bethany, my job is not to light the fire. He said that's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to stack the kindling, and then I wait and pray for the the fire to fall. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not. Sure. We're not Pentecostals, but I guess if you can think about that and just maybe that's yeah. not right to say I'm not Pentecostal. That's not quite the right way to to word that. But no, I, I I fully
1: understand what you're saying. I I think that that's that's a very great perspective to have. It's it's really true.
0: Well, I think. Also, it's so good to have resources on hand that help us to either encourage one another or something to continue to strengthen our faith. You mentioned Ravi Zacharias. Are there any other resources that really have helped you that you would want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I would say the
1: jumping off resource for me, the the one that really When I got this book, I was like, okay, this is what I needed. And that's a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. And essentially what it is is it builds the case for the truthfulness of Christianity from the ground up. It starts with does truth exist? Uh, Does God exist? And gives great arguments uh for the existence of god and then it moves on to the reliability of the bible and the resu- evidence for the resurrection and it just walks you through a positive case for christianity now it's very very condensed it's a lay level book that's just got a ton of information sort of packed into a very small space and so that was kind of a springboard like i would i would read the chapter on biblical reliability and then i'd go read like 10 other books on that but mm. but that book that sort of sprung board me, springboarded, sprungboarded, whatever that is, <laughs> springboarded me, I jumped off into uh, all the other arguments. And then that's when I started reading the scholars and Frank does such a great job of laying out just the basic case. And then if you find something in that book that you're particularly interested in, for example, the re- evidence for the resurrection. Well, then you can go read N.T. Wright. You can read uh, Gary Habermas. You can read Mike Lacona. and there's lots of, of resources that that you can read that will go deeper. And and Frank's book is about I think it's about 10 years old now. It, it definitely needs a little bit of a an update. There are some facts in there that now that we know a little bit more about. For the most part, it's um, just such a great, reliable resource to build a positive case for Christianity. Perfect for somebody who doesn't want to deconstruct, but they just need a little bit of intellectual foundation to help them understand why they believe what they believe. That's a great resource. Jay Warner Wallace is another one. Cold Case Christianity is a fantastic mm. book, just wonderful book to get you started. And then of course, uh, Greg, Co- if you want something a little more theological, Greg Kokel's The Story of Reality is, it's like, so hard to describe what this book is. It's a story, but it's systematic theology told in a story. Hmm. So you don't—I read it to my kids, and they loved it. So you don't even realize you're reading systematic theology, but it'll just give you a really solid foundation theologically, and that's Greg
0: Kokel's story of reality. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll make sure we have those in our show notes as well. But where can we find you? Where do our listeners find you online and your book, Another Gospel? You can, well, right now, Amazon has a
1: pre order link for another gospel. So you can go and you can pre order it today. But to connect with me, you can go to alisachilders.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at alisachilders and on Facebook at alisachilders blog.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed having you here. I've loved this conversation. Like I said, it's kind of a dream come true for me um, to finally get to discuss this with you. And I'm so excited about helping get this book out into so many women's hands. I think it's going to be an enormous blessing for them and for the church. One last question that I ask every guest, Elisa, what has the Lord been using in your life lately to encourage you in your walk with Him?
1: Well, at the time, I don't know when this is going to air, but at the time we're recording this, it's, you know, the world has really kind of gone crazy. (laughs) And um, I've been feeling, I think the same thing everybody's been feeling, just that kind of lack of stability. And I'll be honest, I mean, this might be the boring cliche answer, but it's, Dead honest, and it's just the word of God. Yeah. Just opening up my Logos, I, I have Logos Bible software. I open that up in the morning, and I'm just reading chronologically through the Bible this year. And so I'm not doing a deep dive study right now, but um, just reading in. The Bible, and it's so weird because it doesn't even matter. It can be Judges, which is, you know, a horrifically violent and not very happy book, but it's just to to be in God's word is comforting to me just when the world is so shaky and unstable to go to God's stable, unchanging word. And it just, it's been bringing me a lot of comfort. That's beautiful.
0: And I, I can definitely relate to that. I think it's been the one thing that I can cling to, to be honest.
1: Yes, for sure.
0: Thank you again so much for joining me, Elisa. It's been such a delight.
1: Oh, Bethany, it was just a total joy for me. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining us again, friend. You can find us on social media at Women Encouraged on Instagram and on Facebook as well at The Women Encouraged page. You'll find show notes and more at women-encouraged.com. One of my favorite passages in John is in chapter 6 after Jesus feeds the 5,000, and later tells them he is the bread of life, giving some hard words to the people following him. It's so interesting to me how John highlights the fact that all the people grumbling about Jesus and his credentials and his abilities happens after Jesus' followers are unwilling to consider and receive his difficult words. This is really parallel to what we often go through as Christians and what happens a lot of the time with the deconstructing process that Elisa talked about Hard words sometimes lead us to think that God's word is too difficult for us, and then we begin to grumble. In verse 41, it says that the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus went on to say a few verses later that he was the living bread that came come down from heaven. And he also said if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But Jesus' own disciples grumbled about this, saying, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then it says that Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, asked them if they were really going to take offense at this. He went on to ask them more difficult questions about their own hearts and what they were willing to receive about him. And then he said, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. At this point, many of them take offense and then they walk away, so Jesus asks the remaining disciples if they also want to leave. Peter says to him these beautiful words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus makes it so clear here that if we have received and believed his words, it's because the Father has drawn us to him and the Spirit has given us life. As Christians, we will regularly wrestle with what we don't understand and what we don't know yet. We will encounter doubt, but we have a God who is constant and true and faithful. Friend, I am praying that we will be women who give thanks to the Father who has called us and qualified us. I am praying we'll continually come back to the one who alone has the words of eternal life. Friend, there is no other Savior. There is no other gospel. Let's believe and share the good news. Thanks again for being here.